Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, the Heart Guy, and I welcome you to another exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease, heart failure, and organ donation, and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today an inspiring leader in our global health community, Dr. Kevin Boggs, MBA, PhD. Dr. Boggs is currently the Director of the Office of Technology Development at the Medical College of Wisconsin. In that role, he determines the strategic direction of and leads the Office of Technology Development's efforts to commercialize breakthrough technologies from Medical College of Wisconsin. Prior to joining MCW, Dr. Boggs was a Senior Manager of Global Licensing at Research Triangle Institute International in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. Dr. Boggs also has served as Assistant Vice President of Technology Transfer and Executive Director of the FedEx Institute of Technology at the University of Memphis. He has worked in business development at a venture-backed gene therapy startup and in technology licensing at a top five university licensing office. His PhD is in biochemistry, and he's also earned an MBA with an emphasis in marketing. Kevin and his wife have one child who is a senior in college, and that is, of course, his greatest accomplishment. Kevin, welcome to The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, it's our pleasure. So I know that this will already be fascinating, but before we get into the nitty gritty, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? I grew up mostly in uh, South Florida, Southeast Florida, the sort of Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach areas. And then undergraduate school was uh, just up the road at, at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Yeah. And they're known for their football team and all that stuff. So it's an exciting place to be, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. My PhD is from the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. That's lovely there, too. I've, I've been fortunate to visit South Carolina there as well. Uh, we look forward to going back and do our traveling again. So let me get into it a little bit. Kevin, I have an LVAD, a HeartMate 3, and I know that basic research, often funded by the federal government, generates scientific breakthroughs. But patients need new medicines, devices like mine, and diagnostic tools like my cardio MEMS that have been rigorously tested to show safety and efficacy. How do these breakthroughs get turned into safe and effective new products and services for patients and physicians who need them? Yeah, I mean, as you said, your basic research sometimes reveals new ways to treat or manage diseases. You know, it could be a new drug. It could be like your HeartMate 3, a new device. It could be a diagnostic method that could help it detect either the presence of a disease or the progression of a disease. So in universities, when these discoveries are made, offices like Office of Technology Development here at MCW, we, we learn about them by talking with faculty that make the inventions. And then we evaluate the invention and the potential commercial products that they could be the basis for. And then if we believe that the invention is something that doctors, hospitals would buy and that patients would need, we will file a patent application on that invention. And the reason for that is because medical devices, drugs are all, we're all very aware of how expensive those are to bring through generally FDA trial process to make sure that they're safe for patients. Very, very expensive. Um, and to make sure 
you know, for a company to, to make sure that they will be able to get a return on their investment, they're going to need to know that they will be the only company that could then sell that product. Just imagine if you invested tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in a new product and the day it came on the market, you know, your competitors without having spent that money could go right in and, and start selling that product and, and undercut you on price. So that's why when we file a patent application and then license it, but give one company the exclusive, the only right to be the company that makes a product based on that invention, that gives them the ability then to, and the comfort to invest that money to the FDA and bring it to market so that at least for some period of time, they'll have the exclusive rights to sell that and they'll be able to make a return on their investment along with providing a you know, needed device or a drug to improve healthcare outcomes. Yeah, so federal law passed in 1980, as I understand it, the right for universities and nonprofits to own intellectual property that results from federally funded research. Why was this new law needed when it was enacted? Well, this is so it was enacted in 1980. And so if, uh, if those of us remember the, the sort of the late 70s, we recall that at the time, the real economic competitive threat to the United States was Japan. And there was a concern that the world class, the world leading research that was done in our universities simply was not sort of bridging the gap, you know, across the, um, you know, the divide to make it into being commercial products. So all this great work, research, cutting edge research, it was being published. It was benefiting humankind by advancing knowledge, but it wasn't turning into products. And so fortunately, the Senate and, and House recognized this and they thought, well, you know, let's try something. Let's try giving the universities the rights to own intellectual property that is developed with federal funding. But then we'll also give them the proactive obligation to you know, do the work, to invest the money in patent applications and then to find companies that will license those patent applications and bring them to market. And so the sort of the proof of the pudding there is that there were either no or very, very few drugs that were on the market before 1980 that came from this cutting edge university research. Since then, there have been dozens of drugs that have come from university laboratories that are improving healthcare outcomes every day. And so that's a very clear indication that, you know, this new ability for universities to take their intellectual property and then work hard to license it to companies or to startups uh, really is bearing fruit for the public and for, for patients. Yeah, uh, that's all. It's so interesting. Many, many universities now are doing more to support startups that are working to commercialize research breakthroughs from their own labs. These programs include small business incubators and entrepreneurs. So why are they doing this and how does that work? A lot of technologies, we call them technologies inventions uh, that come from universities are almost by definition, they're cutting edge and they are very, very early in the sort of product life cycle and the development life cycle and the testing regimes that they will have to go through, which means that there is a lot of risk inherent in these very, very early stage technology. And so, you know, large companies, you know, the St. Jude Medicals and Pfizer's and, you know, and, and others, they. They, they, are, they tend to be adverse to that high level of risk. And so their approach, which I think is not a bad one, is to buy startup companies or new companies that have taken out a lot of that risk by investing money in it and doing some early testing to show that it works, the drug, for example, that works uh, and that it's safe. And so what that leaves us is a situation where 
you know, the large companies uh, sort of shy away from what we have, not in all cases, but in, in some. Then, what, so what we do then is we look for people that have entrepreneurial experience, especially those that have experience in life science, in relevant sort of life science companies. And we show them what we have, technologies or inventions that we have that we believe have commercial potential, and then encourage them to, you know, consider starting a new company around that invention and with the goal of, again, doing that early stage testing and development you know, to bring it to market. And so it's a, really a, become a whole sort of world of programs, as you mentioned, where universities put together all the support structures or as much many of the support structures as they can, you know, to to bring entrepreneurs into their world and, and, and make them aware of what they have you know, to offer, you know, to the entrepreneurs that don't have enough experience, you know, offer them training, you know, offer them access to support for some of the federal grants that are available for small companies, in some cases, even provide small business incubator space with specialized biotech equipment, which is very expensive. So that the companies can have a place to go without investing a large amount of capital up front. Uh, so they can come in at a sometimes subsidized rate, you know, use shared equipment to do that early, early testing and development work that's required before a startup company, you know, can bring the drug far enough along or the device far enough along that it's, it's shown to be safe enough and effective enough that a, a big company would would come in and buy them. And so it's really a matter of we, a lot of our technologies would never make it to the bedside, never make it to helping patients if we didn't first start with working with small companies and startups uh, and, then, and then help them you know, sort of overcome those initial problems so that they can develop it and then sell the company to a larger, uh, a larger company. So, so for you, what's the difference between working with a small company and working with a large company? Yeah, a, a small company, they have one goal. Um, and that is to bring your technology through the development and testing process. Um, and generally, when they when a company starts, they have only one product. And if it, you, something that you have licensed to them, your university has licensed to them, that's that's their bread and that's their day. As they wake up in the morning. I'm going to work on this new device for that I licensed from the Medical College of Wisconsin or wherever. And, and so you can count on their focus for the most part. Sometimes, sometimes that can be an issue and, and we can we can address that in various ways. But we know that they won't they don't have an issue of prioritizing, you know, your invention among dozens or hundreds of other projects. Now, the drawback or the challenge, of course, with startups is they tend to not have enough money. They are very lean on staff. They, um, you know, they have a lot of. You know, they have to be able to raise money from investors, and that can be, you know, that can take a long time. So there are issues with with startup companies that can be a challenge. Uh, on the large company side, you know, the large companies have the resources, they have the expertise, they will, for example, have regulatory affairs experts that can help expertly guide the product through the Food and Drug Administration testing regime. Uh, but then, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the concern can be with a large company that it's just one of many projects that they're working on. And mm. will it get the priority that you really need for the product to come to market. You know, we feel we're very concerned and almost job one for people in my profession is, you know, to make sure that when we license our inventions to companies, that they bring them to market. Because, you know, if it's federally funded, you know, the taxpayer supported this, you know, we can't let a company just sort of sit on it and, and not bring it to market. And so it's very, uh, something we very much are concerned about um, and that we uh, do our best to try to reduce the chances that a company you know, won't prioritize it. So that, those are sort of the big company, small company differences. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the taxpayers. So are there broader benefits to the region uh, in the university area? Absolutely. You know, universities, um, you, you, people point to you know, Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, uh, places like Austin, Texas, uh, Atlanta, Georgia is having success, Gainesville, Florida, and, and other places you know, that have active sort of startup environments around their university. And, you know, those startups, if they're successful, they bring in money from outside, generally from outside of the state, from investors. They are a source of, uh, over time, they're a source of clean, high wage, average wage jobs. Um, and then once you get to a certain critical mass of companies like that, it's even easier to attract, you know, other companies to the area. And it, and it can really be very much of a, give your city sort of a high tech base of, of income and economy. And so there's a lot of reasons why, you know, universities do try to maintain uh, or build and maintain, you know, the sort of startup environment or people often call it ecosystem around their area and, and frankly it also can help you know rec recruit and retain not just you know, professors at the university but people at other sort of high-tech companies in the area when, when there's such an environment right so what do the universities and faculty get in return for licensing intellectual property to companies or startups yeah the, well one thing the first thing that when i'm talking to faculty that aren't familiar with our process that i emphasize is you know faculty uh, they make a big difference in the world, in my opinion. You know, they discover new knowledge. They train the next generation of scientists, um, you know, and, and they often provide community service. And but I believe and, and what I tell them is that this is a, yet another way that they can materially significantly benefit the world by helping an invention they make come to the market and provide an enhanced LVAD device or a better drug to treat emphysema or whatever it would be. It's a real way to have a positive impact on the world by working to commercialize an, an invention you make. There is also a financial, potential financial benefit. This Bayh-Dole Act, federal act from 1980 I mentioned, actually has a, a requirement that universities, if they are to earn any net revenue, usually net of patent costs and other costs, but if they earn net revenue, they are to share some a reasonable portion of that net revenue with the inventors personally, not into their labs, but to them personally. Hmm. And so if you look at universities across the country, it's generally in the range of about 30, 25 to 30% of the net that is given to the inventors as an incentive for them to work with offices like mine, because it, it does take some work. And um, so that's, that's the other. So besides Impact the World, have a potential financial benefit. And their department also, and this is maybe a little inside baseball, but mm -hmm. their department generally receives a share of that. And, and that can you know, help provide you know, resources to benefit future research. Yeah. I mean, and, and we know uh, these inventions are, are constantly being updated and all. How long does it take like a, a device like mine to actually hit the market? I suspect that HeartMate 4 has already been invented but I don't know when we'd be seeing that. I won't be seeing that, but somebody in the future, hopefully the near future will be seeing that. How long do those things take to actually uh, materialize? On the device side, from the very early stages of a, of a design, you know, I would say it's it tends to be in the, if it's, if it's something like, you know, HeartMate 3, uh, an LVAD device that is, you know, if a, a failure of the device would basically, you know, put the patient's life in jeopardy, it's called a class three device by the FDA. Now that's the uh, that requires the most rigorous testing. Um, I, I, I'm not a real expert on this, but I believe that, that class three devices tend to be in the 
four to seven year range of coming to market from sort of prototype, yeah, maybe four or five years of things that are whose uh, failure would be slightly less harmful to the patient. Class two devices, they are less expensive and take a little less time. And those can often come on the market, you know, in a couple of years. Then on the, on the pharmaceutical side, drugs take a very long time to bring to market, you know, something in the range of seven years from first testing of it before it's tried in humans to being on the market would be quite fast. Um, and some drugs, especially central nervous system acting drugs, often take 10, 11 years. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, and it's interesting because even once they hit the market, sometimes uh, they find problems with those products after they've been released. I think there's a competitor for Artmate 3 that ran across a couple of problems uh, with regard to how the patients were responding to it recently. Hmm. You know, so those things are also interesting, but they're necessary if we're going to progress in developing these cures for people. And so we have to try them out and we have to figure out what the next step would be, I guess, once we determine positives and negatives there. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do universities help to assure that the companies they license intellectual property to don't shelve it so that it won't compete with existing products or worse, misuse the intellectual property in some way? Well, as I mentioned, that really is a very uh, important you know, job for us in, in offices like mine. You know, what we include in a license that's exclusive, you know, where technology being shelved or not, you know, or not emphasized, you know, would cause real harm because we can't license it to another company. In those licenses, we include what we call, I call achievement milestones or diligence milestones. And those are very specific and objectively measurable accomplishments that are on the path of the approval for the drug or the device to market and we include dates so for example we will say that you know this a drug if it's being licensed must be approved for first you know, phase one clinical trials by 24 months after the license is signed, or and then phase two some number of months after that if it's a device you know that it's something similar to that and, and we include the right for us to terminate the license if they miss those milestones, because we, we don't want them, you know, we're kind of at, you know, there's a real opportunity cost to licensing something exclusively. And so when a company, you know, isn't serious and doesn't do the work, or if it's a startup and they can't raise enough money and can't get the work done, you know, we need as quickly as possible to get it back. So we, if, so we can try at least to get it in the hands of a company that, that can do it right. Other ways we do this uh, include um, maybe some less effective ways, but we add them anyway. And they would include requiring that the company, after the product is on the market, pay a certain uh, minimum royalty uh, such that even if they don't work hard to sell the product, they still have to pay us something every year. So we want to make it painful enough for them if they're not going to be selling it or developing it that they look at that annual payment and say, well, let's give it back to the medical college in this case. So we want to make sure that's, that they have a real decision to make. Do we sit on it and pay this X number of thousands of dollars per year? Or do we you know, just, just give it back to the, the, the university we licensed it from? So that's wow. a couple of ways that we do yeah. it. And sort of a priori, what we do is we make sure to the extent we can that the, if it's a startup, that the company has or plans to have, you know, the right management um, that they we, we believe they can do the work, or if it's an existing company, we make sure that the product is, you know, is clearly, you know, complementary with their existing product development pipeline. And one thing we also look at is, you know, is the product we're licensing them is it pretty clear that it will compete with something that generates a lot of cash for them? 
So they'll be tempted to sort of shelve it so it doesn't hurt one of their uh, cash cows. Uh, that's a little more ambiguous at how you manage that, uh, but it's something that we need to be aware of. Yeah, so interesting. So, so what are some examples of products? Uh, can you talk about any products that you have worked on that have helped patients? Yeah, I've just been at the medical college a, a couple of years, and and we're, we've got several very promising things in, in the works. But you know, one that was from a, a previous university I worked at was a was a new sort of uh, wound care. Uh, essentially a, a sponge or a bandage material that was de- developed by uh, a graduate student, a PhD student and his mentor. And what they discovered was there was a way to process a certain natural material. It's actually called chitazan. It's purified from like shrimp shells and insect shells and that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it's a fine white powder once you, once you purify it. But they discovered a way to, to treat this. They sort of fell upon it, actually, uh, that made it so that it could absorb, it could be turned into a sponge, absorb liquid, and then still hold its shape, which other processing of chitosan was never able to do. So we filed a patent application. And because it was really sort of a, a, an accident and a surprise, it was clear that it was not obvious, which is one of the requirements patent office you know, gives us before we can get a patent. And we got a patent on it. We licensed it to a startup company. Well, they were a small company that had other products. Products, but you know they uh, did the testing. They got it through FDA. They brought it to market. And then I remember the young man who had gotten his PhD to went to work for the company told me a story about he had heard from I think it was uh, somewhere in Chicago uh, a man had his foot mangled in a motorcycle accident, and it was it was horribly infected. The application of this sponge with the right antibiotic was able to, with other things couldn't, uh, reduce that infection and it saved his foot. Uh, and so I've, I've often thought, you know, my small part in bringing that to market was sort of rewarded by this great story of this person, you know, ha- you know, being able to maintain their foot. There are a lot of stories, you know, from universities that of other products, but that's one I've very specifically personally has a bit of a hand in. Yeah. And that has to be uh, quite the experience when you see something that you've worked on actually come to help patients. That's, that's right. wonderful. So do you know anything about what the future will look like for heart transplantation? Will there be a total artificial heart in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime? I, I wish I had that crystal ball. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you know, research, you know, anyone that's familiar with it, it can so- sort of seem like it goes in fits and starts. You know, there's there's steps yeah. forward that are promising. Sometimes there's leaps forward when people discover things that, you know, just by thinking very, very differently, you know, come up with things that, you know, others hadn't thought of. But it, it tends to be a bit more incremental. A lot of the easy problems have been solved. So, you know, things like what you're talking about are significant problems. Uh, I believe that, you know, that the research will continue and over time, you know, whether it be in my lifetime, I don't know, but you know, I have confidence that things like that will eventually be on the market. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned serendipity because I think a lot of the uh, like side effects of certain drugs ended up being drugs that were used for purposes other than they were originally intended for and that sort of thing. We hear about stories like that. But at the same time, I think your hard work is really at at the root of the advancements that we're making in medicine. And I'm I'm so thankful for you and and the things that you do behind the scenes, more or less, to help uh, us get better as patients. I mean, I think that people have to be aware of the hard work that people like you do. So thank you for that. It's, It's an honor to be able to do this work. It's a it's a, it's a wonderful profession. Yeah. Oh, this has been great. So interesting. Kevin, it's been my great honor to have you as a guest on The Heart of the Matter. On behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for all that you've done 
for your local community there and and the global community as well with your incredible dedication and for sharing this time with us. I hope we can do this again soon. We can maybe find out about some new uh, inventions or devices that are uh, coming to pass uh, in the near future. I, I think we have some promising ones and I'm excited to talk about them. Uh, excellent. Uh, thank you so much. Well, that is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our website at www.drheart2heart.net for upcoming podcasts or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization. If you'd like to be a guest on the Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and several other platforms if you search The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter. Until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman wishing you peace and hope.